Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 4, Episode 15, Emperor Kammo's Big Moves. Upon Emperor Konin's retirement, the Great Council of State took the opportunity to declare that they would not consider any woman eligible to take the throne in his stead. The choice of heirs had already been made, but it seems that the Kuge wanted to clearly state that the troubles that began during the reign of Empress Shotoku and the consequences that still plagued the nation came about because of the Tenno's gender, not because of any failing on the part of the Daijo Daikon. This was a way of distancing themselves from the present troubles of leadership, but it became cited as permanent policy by future generations. Crown Prince Yamabe's ascension was a historic event. He was the first emperor with Baikje royal heritage, and while his father had done his best to fix many things about the government that were broken, there was still much to be done. The protracted war against the Amishi in the east had yet to be resolved in any way, and the many Buddhist sects of Heijo-kyo were exercising outsized influence at court and among the commoners. The path to absolute victory over the indigenous peoples of the East was still fairly unclear in 781, when Crown Prince Yamabe was elevated as Emperor Kammu at the age of 45. The question of how to limit the power of Buddhist influence, however, had a much more tangible path. During the reign of retired Emperor Konin, a series of imperial edicts chipped away at the privileges of the six schools. These included limiting the number of practicing priests, monks, and nuns for the various sects, as well as limiting their ability to construct new temples, shrines, and other monuments. The final years of Emperor Konin's reign had been fraught with disaster, and the clergy may have hoped that the pendulum would swing their way once more, that Emperor Kammu would follow the lead of Emperor Shomu and Empress Koken, and place his kingdom in the compassionate hands of the Buddha. If these were their hopes, they were quickly disappointed. Kammu Tenno made it very clear from early on in his reign that he intended to follow his father's policies of limiting Buddhist influence in the interest of continuing the reform and rebuilding the state's authority. He was, of course, happy to have their help with things such as the Goryo-e, a ritual by which vengeful ghosts of wrongfully executed nobles, called Goryo, could be pacified, particularly because he believed that two such ghosts were haunting him, that of the late Empress Inoue and his own half-brother, Prince Osabe. He designated his younger brother, Prince Sawara, now in his thirties, as the crown prince, shortly after taking the throne in 781. In January of 782, just eight months after his son took the throne, the retired Emperor Konin 
died after an extended bout with illness and depression. Emperor Kammu seems to have been something of a visionary leader, and he even took a direct interest in the inner workings of the Daigaku, the imperial university, where promising young leaders were trained to perform well on the civil service examination and eventually appointed to government posts. The emperor was particularly fond of Confucian philosophy, and in 784 he arranged for a new course to be taught on the spring and autumn annals, which included the guidance of newly acquired commentaries from China. These particular commentaries recommended a state model which was not only headed by a son-of-heaven emperor, but also justified the subjugation of barbarian neighbors for the sake of blessing them with a superior government system. I think it's safe to assume that while Kamutenno did not yet have the capabilities to practically subjugate the Amishi in the north, he likewise was unwilling to abandon the matter entirely. 784 was also the year in which the emperor made a startling announcement. He was going to build a new capital. The primary reason for this big move, we believe, was that it was part of his overall objective of limiting the political power of the six schools of Nara Buddhism. It was impossible to ignore their demands when they were headquartered just a short distance away from the Daigokuden itself. By relocating the capital after he had solidified his father's edicts that they weren't allowed to build new buildings without permission, he could restore what he saw as the proper balance between church and state. After consulting with his various advisors, Kamutenno decided that the ideal location for the new seat of power would lie just a little ways inland from the growing port city of Naniwa. The reasons this particular location was chosen were both practical and spiritual. The emperor placed Fujiwara Tanetsugu, just recently promoted to the Dainagon, Great Council, in charge of choosing the new capital. Along with court geomancers and a fair number of his fellow Kuge, he chose a settlement 30 miles, that's 48 kilometers, to the north of the existing capital along the Yodo River. The inlet delta that became the Yodo River was the location of Naniwa, which ensured that trade goods coming into that port town could more easily make their way to the new capital. The name of this illustrious new city was going to be Nagaoka-kyo, and while some historians mark 784 as the end of the Nara period, on this podcast I will be extending it to 794 for reasons which shall become clear. As the construction began on Nagaoka-kyo, so did the problems. Some of the Kuge were unhappy with this whole business of moving the capital, likely because doing so would diminish their influence. There were also problems with the location itself being situated on a floodplain. Periodic flooding hindered construction efforts and delayed the actual move itself. Fujiwara Tanetsugu, however, was determined to do his part and dared not complain to the Tenno himself about the conditions of this assignment. 
There were whispers that Tanetsugu had unduly influenced the decision of the new location because of the influence of the Hata clan. Tanetsugu's mother hailed from that clan, and they were headquartered not far from Nagaoka in Yamashiro province. Moving the capital closer to the Hata clan's base of power could mean a shift in political power toward the Hata at the expense of the other Kuge clans. In 785, while still overseeing Nagaoka Kyo's construction, Fujiwara Tanetsugu was struck by an arrow and died of his wound the following day. The assassination shook the court, and Emperor Kammu was furious at the audacity of the act itself and demanded an immediate investigation. The first suspect to be arrested was Otomo Takera, but over a dozen people were implicated by the evidence uncovered by the investigators. Justice was swift, and they were beheaded for their part in the conspiracy. Eventually, investigators came to the emperor and informed him that they had discovered evidence that his own younger brother, Crown Prince Sawara, even had a hand in the scheme. It is not clear to me precisely how a plot as simple as kill a man with a bow and arrow required more than one person to carry out, much less more than twelve. It could be that Emperor Kammu was unhappy with the anti-Nagaoka faction and used the incident as an opportunity to rid himself of their presence at court. As for his younger brother, it is believed that Crown Prince Sawara was very close to the leadership of the Nara temples, and that he may have even promised to help prevent the move to Nagaoka-kyo. None of this evidence is damning, but it seems to have been enough to convince Kamutenno that his successor was unworthy of the office. Prince Sawara was stripped of his title and status, and sentenced to exile on Awaji Island. The story goes that he starved himself, refusing any food offered to him on the journey to his new home, and thus died of starvation while en route. Or was it... (sighs) murder? The former crown prince's death was terribly convenient for certain members of the Fujiwara clan, and especially for the Empress Otomuro, who was herself a Fujiwara. They preferred an emperor who shared their bloodline after all, and Prince Sawara was neither of Fujiwara stock, nor was he married to a Fujiwara bride. All that being said, there is no clear answer either way, and poisoning seems just as likely a cause of death as self-starvation. There's also the possibility that he refused to eat specifically because he feared being poisoned, which would make his subsequent demise a tragic irony. Emperor Kammu quickly named his son, Prince Ate, as his official successor. The boy was 12 years old at the time. The following year, 786, Empress Otomuro gave birth to another son and named him Kamino. Construction went forward at Nagaoka-kyo in the meantime, but the area continued to experience periodic flooding, which led some to whisper that the ghost of Prince Sawara was enacting vengeance upon his brother. 
In 788, a veteran Kuge named Ki Kosami, who had strong ties to Kanto and Tohoku, was appointed as Seito Shogun, supreme commander in the east, and tasked with raising an army for another punitive expedition against the Amishi. In 789, he and an army of 50,000 marched on Mutsu. Shortly after arriving at the fortresses in the east, he assembled 4,000 of those troops in an attempt to engage the Isawa Emishi. The leader of the Isawa Emishi was a man known as Aterui. The target of the imperial army's raid was Subuse village, where Aterui and his fellow Emishi lived. Seito Shogun Kikosami probably thought himself very clever for coming up with the following battle plan. Split the army into two equal-sized forces and approach the village from two sides. They burned the smaller outlying settlements as they went and even engaged a small force of 300 Amishi warriors who quickly fled after a few volleys. Ki Kosami probably thought things were going pretty well as they pressed further into enemy territory. However, as they neared the village of Subuse, 800 Amishi horsemen suddenly emerged from the tree line on one side of the river and charged into the surprised and unready imperial troops. The soldiers on the opposite bank tried to ford the river to help their comrades, but were harried by arrow fire from the horsemen. They attempted to withdraw, only to be surprised by another 400 Amishi warriors, whose charge shocked them so badly that they were routed and fled for their lives. The court records indicate that over a thousand imperial soldiers perished in the fight, most from drowning in the Kitakami River. Another thousand who survived managed to stay afloat by stripping themselves naked so that their armor wouldn't drag them down to a watery grave. The incident is somewhat reminiscent of the famous ambush in Teutoburg Forest hundreds of years before and half a world away. Unlike the extremely unfortunate Publius Quincetilius Verus, Seito Shogun Kikosami survived the battle, along with 3,000 soldiers. He refused to engage the Amishi again, citing a wide variety of excuses in his missives to the imperial court. The entire incident was nothing short of a humiliating catastrophe for both the imperial government and the shogun, who was promptly imprisoned upon his return to the capital as punishment. This seems to have been but a temporary setback for Kikosami, however, as he was later pardoned and even appointed to the Middle Council. The Battle of Subuse remains a startling anomaly among ancient Japanese battles, given that such a relatively small force of Amishi defeated an imperial contingent with nearly four times their number. I tend to believe that there were two major advantages possessed by the indigenous northerners which led them to such an astounding victory. One, that the imperial army was largely composed of conscripts who were poorly trained and easily frightened. And two, the Amishi were fighting to defend their homeland while their foes had no personal investment in the outcome of the struggle. 
the primary motivations of the average Nara-period Japanese soldier would have been to survive the battle and return home safely. 789 was also a year of famine and struggle for the common people in the capital. The peasants at this point began to dread the periodic conscription and were finding more ways than ever to avoid the draft. Some even went as far as disguising themselves in the garments of Buddhist monks to avoid the watchful eyes of the recruiters. Kamutenno was furious at the humiliating loss at the Battle of Subuse, but being a practical man, he recognized that the existing system was not working and in need of a drastic reform. Thus, in 792, the government put an end to forced military service, and in its place implemented a system of regular soldiers dedicated to training and maintaining a state of battle readiness. Each province would use its own resources to keep trained militias at the ready, and they would be called up for service when the need arose. In the words of George Sansom, This was the beginning of a distinction between peasants and soldiers which may be regarded as the germ of the warrior class that reached its maturity in feudal times. In 793, after nearly a decade of construction delays, flooding, famine, and disastrous military expeditions, Emperor Kammu decided that the move to Nagaoka-kyo was indeed a mistake. However, returning to Heijou-kyo was not an option. Here is where an old friend makes a reappearance in our narrative, Wake Kiyomaro. You might remember Kiyomaro as the kuge who traveled to the Usa-Hachimangu Shrine on Kyushu to confirm the oracle that Do-kyo ought to be made the new emperor toward the end of the reign of Empress Shotoku. After the empress died and Do-kyo was stripped of power along with his partisans, Kiyomaro was welcomed back into the inner circle and given many important tasks, most involving civil engineering and infrastructure. He built bridges, rerouted rivers, and ensured a smooth system for transporting goods to the capital. In the spring of 793, he convinced Emperor Kammu to abandon Nagaoka-kyo and instead build a new capital which was a little higher in elevation and a little further inland, but still lay upon the important Yodo River. This new capital was named Heian-kyo. In late October 794, the Daigokuden and enough of the other key buildings were erected for Emperor Kammu to lead a massive procession from Nagaoka-kyo to the new seat of power, which would retain its designation as Japan's capital for more than a thousand years. With this final move to a permanent capital, the Nara period comes to a close, and the Heian period begins. In June of 794, a few months before Emperor Kamu's big move, there was another historical milestone, which I'm sure will delight my fellow fans of the Shogun Total War video games. Wanting to test the new provincial militia system and punish the Amishi for their belligerence, 
the court appointed a man named Otomo Otomaro to the newly created office of Sei Tai Shogun, the commander-in-chief tasked with subduing the barbarians in the east. Next season, we'll discuss Shogun Otomaro's approach to the subjugation of the Amishi. The Nara period was a time when Japan's government and people struggled through questions of identity, religion, and proper governance. Buddhism reached the apex of its political power during this time, and while there would not be another reigning empress for hundreds of years, the women who sat upon the chrysanthemum throne set an example in their leadership that would inspire future Tenno for generations to come. Many changes lie in store for Japan in the Heian period, but the shadows of Nara were long, and the consequences of its many crises and disasters would continue to influence Japanese culture, society, and government. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan. Visit the online store, ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web, ahistoryofjapan.com.